I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Allison Lee has been a formidable voice at the SEC for years, both as a commissioner and as interim chairman, offering her voice on a range of issues, from private company disclosures to heightening environmental, social, and governance reporting of public companies. But she has now announced her intention to leave the agency, and with successors nominated, we wanted to do a debrief as she enters her final stretch. Now, Allison has been a friend for years, and it's always a delight to have people on the show that you respect and that can give our listeners an inside perspective on what goes on at the country's top enforcement shop. So sit back as we kick the tires on what ESG and public company reforms may mean for fintech and the broader industry, and a conversation on whether reforms intended to make markets safer may, in fact, make them less inclusive. Commissioner Lee, thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate you having me, and I'm looking forward to the discussion. All right. Well, I guess we'll start with the obvious. You're leaving the SEC. So what what, what prompted you to uh, make the announcement now? Well, you know, my term is up in June, and it was always my plan to just serve out my term. I had been planning to retire before the nomination process came up. I had a a visiting professorship lined up at a law school in Rome. So I decided to delay that just for the remainder of the term they wanted me to fill. But as I said in my statement, I'm going to stay until my successor is confirmed and we don't know when that'll be. So I I said to my colleagues, I I hope this won't be the longest, most awkward goodbye on record (laughs) um, because I don't know how long I'll I'll be here. But as long as I am, I'm I'm deeply engaged on the commission's work and and there's no shortage of that. So um, we've got a pretty full agenda. Well, you know, I I just want you to know that the next time you have an invitation to teaching in Rome that you can't make, you, you know where your friendly neighborhood podcaster is. Anyway, you've you know certainly done a lot during your tenure, and for the listeners, a raft of varying in, uh, initiatives you know um, that are are certainly front and center. ESG is super interesting. It's not usually associated with fintech per se, and, and sometimes it, it gets missed. But maybe we can just start at a ten thousand foot sort of level, just talking about the SEC's work, and maybe you can describe a little bit about what that work is as it pertains to ESG matters. Sure. And and I'll say this, I agree with you that there is a link um, between fintech and ESG that does get missed and and that ought to be um, thought about very carefully. And I welcome your views and input on that. But I'll start with the climate proposal, which is what I assume you're sort of referring to, which we issued last week. At a high level, um, you know, it's a disclosure proposal that builds off of existing, and I think this is really critical, existing market-driven solutions like TCFD, like like the GHG protocol, which are already in in wide use. So it establishes a a standardized framework for disclosing climate-related risks and opportunities. So investors can price that risk when they're making their investment decisions, and then they can allocate capital as they see fit. They've been very clear for a very long time that they need better information on climate risks. And of course, as I mentioned, we're very fortunate in in formulating the disclosure that we didn't have to start from scratch because of all the private ordering that's already occurred 
around climate. But even with those frameworks gaining broad support, many companies still make no disclosures or they don't disclose completely or their own disclosure varies from period to period. And a lot of it, as you know, occurs outside of SEC filings. And that raises questions about the reliability. So investors were still overwhelmingly telling us they needed um, us to sort of step in. And I think it was a place where we would really, could really, and, and I hope will really add value. So that's what this proposal is responsive to. And broadly, I'll just tell you, it has sort of three main parts. So there's the part that is, similar to and aligned with the TCFD rubric. And that is being the, 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 the kind of standard setting that's already been done. Yes, yes. Let me, let me just back up. So TCFD, the, the task force um, uh, on uh, financial dis- climate-related financial disclosures, which is a global um, sort of approach to, to the issue of what needs to be disclosed with respect to climate. And it has a three-part, actually a four-part regime where you would disclose risks, you would disclose governance, you would disclose strategy, and then you would disclose metrics. So, so the first part of our, dis- our proposal aligns with that in terms of risk, governance, strategy. Then the metrics part, um, which you know TCFD kind of leaves open, we filled in with the GHG protocol or that which is very similar to the GHG protocol. So we have the the TCFD part, the GHG um, emissions disclosure part that's consistent with the GHG protocol, and then the financial statement part. And this was a really important piece of it where we've said, let investors see how climate is hitting your financial statements right now. So disaggregate climate with respect to certain line items in the financial statements if the impact is large enough. So there's more than that, but that's kind of the big picture of of what it um, will uh, proposes to accomplish for investors. You know, this proposal has attracted an enormous amount of attention, you know, for law professors like myself. It's one of those things that, uh, you know, is the gift that keeps giving in terms of a law review <laughs> articles. Um, it, it's, it's been met with um, lots of support, lots of criticism when it comes to sort of the, the, the pushback. You know, part of it has centered on the ambiguity and, and, and cost, right? And just how... I suppose, and I'm paraphrasing things, so you know, seriously, you know, feel free to jump in. But you know, just in terms of how I'm guessing on the metrics end, you operationalize some of the the, the requirements as the process sort of moves forward from here. Is there still more learning going on, or, or, or is there a sense, you know, because there there was a lot of work already done, you know, that that you know we're we're kind of in that last uh, inning. And do you expect it, you know, the proposal to change very much as it's going through the deliberative process? Well, so the answer is maybe. I mean, let me start by saying this. It's, it's. I know. Sorry, sorry for the. No, no, no. Answer. It's a lawyerly answer. Go it's for it. A, it is, but, but, but here's what's important. We do. It's, it's, it's extremely significant. The notice and comment process. That's not a, um, that's not a pro forma thing that we go through. It's a, it's a real exercise, and we take that information in. We respond to that feedback, especially the criticism, which you know, as you know, is coming from both sides of the issue. Some say we've gone too far. Some say we didn't go far enough. But, you know, we have to consider all of that. And we really benefit from the expertise we get in that process, from the data that we get during the comment period. Um, you know, that's that's helpful. And so where that will take us r- remains to be seen. I, I think, though, I would highlight 
one criticism here that I have found to be, I think, pretty off base. And that's the idea that we're not staying in our lane with this proposal, that we're, we're trying to be the EPA or, or exceeding our authority in some way. But this proposal doesn't purport to address or regulate climate change. This is a disclosure rule. That is our bread and butter at the SEC and squarely within our authority when, as here, you have disclosure about a monumental financial risk. So I, I think that's where the argument that we're somehow out of our area just really falls apart. If climate change were not so directly connected to financial results, to long-term value, you know, but it is. And, and so it's just not a credible proposition in my view to, to suggest that this is some sort of social issue and we're out over our skis. That is not to say that there aren't legitimate questions that we need to wrestle with. Um, you know, we, we need to look at and think about. So, so it's completely fair game to say, what should this rule look like? Has it gone too far? How do we weigh the costs and benefits? What's workable? What's not? What, you know, those, those questions we need to wrestle with directly, but the jurisdictional one, I think, is, is actually just not, not solidly grounded in securities law. I find ES, particularly the climate-related disclosures, really fascinating in part because in this way, Europe has actually been very out front on, on this. And it's always very been very focused on, on disclosure, you know, and, and and disclosure risk. And in some ways, there's a, a an attempt to sort of follow, if if anything, an international trend that's that's been in place. But you know, like whenever you you regulate, there are, you know, there are there are benefits and and and, and there are uh, risks. And, and, you know, one of the ones that I've found interesting, and, and certainly, you know, I've talked about different guises, just as a, as a question for financial regulation more generally. And I think it's fascinating when you think about things uh, like the innovation economy writ large, because you have a lot of small companies, large valuations, they're not necessarily public already. But just asking, what does it mean when you add, you know, these kinds of disclosures to the attractiveness of going public, right? How how does one navigate that that kind of a trade off when you're you know dealing with real questions that that investors are asking about you know the impact that that companies have on the climate and the risk that that they may be facing? That is a valid concern, and it's one that we look at and think about every time we make changes to the the, the regime for public company disclosures. I'll tell you though, I and and this is no different with climate. We are looking at that very carefully and, and thinking about it. But I, I think of it a little differently in this regard. There's a vast amount of capital, as you know, in the private markets. This is a public company disclosure rule. So that leaves a great deal of climate risk sort of in the opaque private market. Now, if we strengthen public company requirements, are we going to create not just sort of potential additional costs for companies considering going public, but incentives for companies to take parts of their companies private, right? Um, and create some sort of disclosure arbitrage there. So we do have to think at, about those things and, and, and look at and consider those things. But what I would say is there's been a, a, a big alteration in incentives for entering the public markets that has not, in my views, principally stemmed from traditional disclosure costs, but rather more from the relaxed 
sort of regime that we have around private markets, kind of the lumping together and the relaxation of the various registration exemptions. And understand, you know, there are they these operate as exceptions to the disclosure regime, but they've been, we've just blown a hole through them over the years. And that has made it so much easier and more attractive to stay in the private markets longer, even indefinitely. We see these massive companies um, that stay in the private markets raising raising huge amounts of capital. There's increased liquidity in the private markets. So, you know, the alteration of incentives for going public, I think, should be conceptualized more broadly than just looking at an individual rulemaking in isolation. We need to look at the broader context in which companies are making these decisions about when and whether to enter the public markets, including how our regulation of public and private markets interacts. And that's something I think we could possibly improve upon in our process. That is Another article. No, I mean, I mean, that, that, that's 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 a really some really interesting observations that that you're making there, and in part because you know, I think that when you look at securities law, you know, and when I teach or or you teach in Rome uh, on on securities law, you know, you're focusing one focuses naturally on the investor protection sort of side of things, right? You know, how do you safeguard investors from losing their hard earned earnings, right? You know these kinds of issues, in, not 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 climate, but the but the size, the the even bigger issue of, of of the relative purpose and the size of the private versus public markets. You know, the, I think that's one of those issues that deserves um, maybe more explicit attention, just as a matter of of research and 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 policy. You've been very outspoken about this, you know, and and, and you've uh, written op eds on on things like uh, the the size of 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 private markets and, and growth, you know, to the extent to which one goes about the process of reconfiguring or adding to public company disclosures. I mean, what does that mean for how one should go about thinking about the regulation oversight of private markets? I mean, is this is this sort of getting into this idea that you need to bring more private companies public or it means that there are, need to be more rules for private markets? Yeah, because it, it just seems to me from the outside that, and I've now been teaching long enough to go through varying iterations of, you know, are public markets competitive? Are the private markets competitive? And, and, and there's a sort of a cycle to, to this conversation. But there are some really meaningful changes that are being made right now in the public market. So, so what does that mean for for you when you look at the other side of the coin? So, and that is what I've tried to do is look carefully at the other side of the coin and think in a big picture way about how what we do in each market affects the other one instead of just looking at the economics of what we're doing in each individual market. So there are a lot of contributing factors in in my view to the explosive growth that we've seen in private markets. And I don't mean to suggest it's all bad at all. They're they're awash with capital and that's been extremely helpful for a lot of, of businesses. But but, but we have to think about what we've done and whether we've done this with intention and with thought and with, with careful attention to the data. So I talked about the deregulation or the relaxation of registration exemptions. There's a lot of academic literature out there on this subject. I know you understand this quite well. We've got, you know, Elizabeth DeFontenay has done a lot of great work in this area. Renee Jones, our current um, Corp Fin director. And they've looked at how steadily removing restrictions in the private market and on these exemptions has incentivized companies to stay there. So that's come in the form of congressional action under the JOBS Act. 
We've done this with our so-called um, harmonization efforts over the past few years. We opened up general solicitation in private markets. That was a huge um, change. And it's not just action, it's, it's also inaction. So, um, and I know we'll talk about this, um, I think later in the podcast, but we haven't updated our wealth thresholds and the accredited investor definition in, in nearly 40 years to account for inflation. Um, so those thresholds have effectively been steadily lowered over the years, which opens up the private markets more and more to retail investors. And, and, and in here, I, it, this is something I, I gave a lot of thought and research to, which is the issue of when we decide that a company must become subject to public reporting requirements, which right now depends on the question of how many holders of record do you have in your corporation. And that, that dates back to the 1960s when we looked at this issue in, in, in great detail and said, what's the right metric for triggering a requirement to, to have public reporting? And the answer was and remains the number of what they call shareholders of record. But we are still using a definition for that term from the 1960s, and a lot has changed since then. So record ownership of shares, shares has changed dramatically since the 60s. No, almost no one holds directly in their own name. So what that means is our working definition of how to count shareholders actually has no meaningful relationship to the number of actual shareholders. We're just counting banks and broker dealers, which is an arbitrary number. So I think we need to, if we, you know, the decision has been made by Congress and by us that this is the appropriate metric, the appropriate trigger, we need to bring meaning to that and, and think about how that works. Let's stick with this, with that, with that idea for, for a moment. You know, I, I mean, I've been really, you know, thinking a lot about the growth of the economy. And, and, and I think that what makes this, this topic interesting and what makes it really important is that there are, you know, and I gave a big talk about this um, um, last a couple of weeks ago in Philadelphia is, you know, when you go about financial regulation, you know, you have the rules and then there are questions about from a meta level, like what are the values that one has when, when, when looking at, at one's markets, right? And, you know, certainly in, ingrained in the mandate of the SEC, you have investor protection, you have capital formation, and, 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 and you have efficiency as the kind that are always kind of touted. You know, I've been really thinking a lot about the, the growth of the economy, I've been thinking about a lot about financial inclusion and, you know, you're talking about the accredited investor standard. I've actually, you know, had, a, you know, a line, and this is, I think, just the product of, of becoming older and just sort of going to through one or one too many, I guess, uh, cycles of, 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 of uh, the economy in, in terms of growth and looking at the wealth gap. I wonder at times if in our interest in protecting investors or other kinds of policy priorities, and I'd be curious if you have an idea on this, whether or not we end up ultimately even redlining our capital markets. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic to, and I'm, I'm listening to this conversation where you're thinking, hey, you know, we have these climate concerns, you know, we also have public and private market concerns. Our companies escaping whatever that collection of interests that we have when we say that you're public and you should be subject to public uh, company registration. But there's also something about, you know, looking at smaller companies and that growth cycle and who's able to participate in companies when they're growing the most. And you know, when you look at those standards that, that haven't changed, even if you end up adjusting for inflation, you end up at numbers that, you know, if you're talking about 200 or $300,000 threshold, you're, you're, you're locking out 90% of Black Americans, for example, or, and, and most minorities and Latinos as well, in terms of participating 
And I'm just wondering if, if that's been something that you've been thinking about and whether or not, and I, I don't have any good answers, but, you know, but, but just if that's something that, that's been on your radar, how do you navigate those kinds of questions? And, 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 and yeah, I'll just let you sort of riff. <laughs> yeah, no, no, Chris, I think, um, first of all, uh, uh, let me say this, the, the issue of access and participation in capital markets, that's, that's critical um, and, and, and central to, to what we do. And I deeply appreciate when scholars like yourself help us think those issues through. Um, so the broader issue of diversity in financial services, um, diversity among federal financial regulators, uh, critically important, something you've done a great job of, of shining a light on. Uh, I'll tell you my current thinking, um, you know, that said, with respect to accredited investor and private markets, um, I think about the issue a little differently from how it frequently is framed publicly. That's not to say that what you've identified isn't an absolutely correct dynamic, but I think embedded in, in, the, in the question is this notion that our rules are restricting investors from accessing the private markets. Um, that's the formulation you hear, as though there are these lucrative opportunities awaiting these smaller investors who are just under the line of, you know, whatever the, the wealth threshold is. And um, if we would just get out of their way, they could tap into this vein of, of, of you know, capital formation. But I, you know, in reality, from what I can, uh, you know, from the research that I've done and, and others have done, I think smaller investors are very unlikely to do well in the private markets. They just don't have the same access to information or they don't have the leverage that larger investors do. That's the reason we have the public markets. They're much more likely to do better and to gain positive overall long-term returns in the public markets where there are no information asymmetries or very few, and there's better liquidity. It's just a more level playing field. So I, I don't conceptualize the issue as giving retail investors access to the private markets, in my view, it's more about giving private issuers access to retail investors. And, and for the most part, you know, it, the issuers, it, it's, it's the issuers, not the non-accredited investors who are pushing for more changes to, to that definition. So, and what kinds of, that, of issuers are looking for a big slate of small investors? You know, that's a generalization, but, but broadly, the smaller, riskier companies um, that haven't been able to attract larger institutional investors. Nothing wrong with those businesses. We need to be thinking about how to make sure they have access to capital, but not at the expense of the economic well-being of everyday Americans who can't assess and bear those risks. So that's how I think about it. But I will tell you this, I would love to get more granular every single time we do a rule on how our rules are going to affect people of color, underserved communities. We need that data. We need to be thinking about that in a much more granular way than we than we do right now. And I, I you know, I appreciate everything that informs that debate and that assessment. I think that one of the interesting projects that the, the commission will will have in, in, in the future is is trying to think precisely about that question of of risk and 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 reward, and to ask, well, and this almost gets to your earlier. This is actually backing up some of your your, your earlier comments. You now, when you look at the private markets, if if there's an informational problem, or if there's a certain kind of particular risk to the uh, you know to uh, smaller investors, well, well, then how do you speak to 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 those risks as opposed to locking them out? And how then can the commission kind of leverage whatever opportunities are presented and minimize whatever risks are? 
but that was just, you know, I'll get off my, my, my soapbox because no one really. No, those are, those are valid points, Chris. Um, and, and, and trust me, there's a lot of good thinking around that, the notion of potentially paired investment opportunities with institutional investors. And, and, you know, so I, I, I you know, I, I, I welcome that discussion. It's helpful. Well, you know, okay. So crypto, it's always getting attention these days. I know that more than enough people have asked you about it. And, you know, there's more than a little bit of overlap, you know, with the private market issues and, and with ESG. Uh, but, you know, a lot of that focus has been on, of course, on the new executive order coming out of the White House. I haven't really seen this kind of approach really since a lot of the Dodd-Frank era stuff. I mean, is this just guidance for staff and for commissioners or, or, or Chairman Ginsler? You know, what's the relationship between the, the independent agency that is the SEC and the, the executive order coming out of the White House? Yeah, that's a, I think that's a great question. And, and I think it's something that observers are really want to understand. And, you know, you point out we're an independent agency. That's right. What that means legally is we're not we're not bound by those um, those executive orders, not strictly, um, but it's certainly fair to say that we're going to look at them and we're going to think about principles encompassed in them, the best practices that might inform, you know, our policy making. So, so we do, we can, and we do look at and think about these types of things and ask ourselves what part of this potentially implicates our jurisdiction and our responsibilities and how well do those need to be aligned with what's happening across the regulatory space with, with both independent and, and non-independent agencies. So, so it's important to us. We are not bound by it, but we look at it and think about it. That's interesting. So, so, so it's a bit of a, of a, of a roadmap and, and, and maybe it, it uh, sort of, I'm guessing maybe it saves time because you know who to call uh, in government insofar as the folks over at the White House quarterbacking certain kinds of issues, but, but, but ultimately the decision is, is still left up to the SEC. It is. I'm not even sure I would call it a roadmap, but I would say um, it informs our thinking um, quite, quite carefully and thoroughly. Okay. Well, okay. So, you know, there will, of course, be very, you know, a lot of interest. This is Washington, D.C. In, in finding your successor. And I think it's it's safe to say, you know, the, the political process has been a bit uh, turbulent. You see it all the, all the time um, in, in, in the news. But when you look at, at, at all that you've been able to do and the issues where you've been effective at leaning in on, and when you look at your colleagues, whether or not they're Democrat or Republican, what do you think are the ideal sort of strengths or traits for a commissioner? Yeah, and and do you have any advice for them? I think I think you're asking the question in the right way when you when you identify strengths and traits because there's no one mold really for being successful as as a commissioner. We've seen commissioners with wide different widely different experiences, different approaches, philosophies. Um, and, and backgrounds. So, so, but in terms of traits, um, I can say that above all, a commissioner, you know, and I think almost to a T they do, but need to have a commitment and a passion for public service, because that's what the job is about. Um, and, and that needs to be in your DNA. And, and they need to be collaborative. That's also extremely important. This is a, this is, that's the nature of, a, of an independent commission where you have bipartisan, um, you know, two parties uh, represented. So you have to work with others. You need to factor in alternative ideas and approaches. You've got to be open to that. You always get to a better policy outcome when you benefit from a broad and diverse array of, of people and views. So, you know, uh, and, and here's one other thing I would say, and I'm, I'm 
clearly will admit my bias on this, having served on the staff for so long, but I think they also need to have a, a keen appreciation for the extraordinary staff at the commission, which is our key resource and our biggest strength. So, you know, beyond that, there are so many ways to make the success of a job. I hope I can be a resource to my successor and really to any future commissioners, just as prior commissioners have been a great resource for me on both sides of the aisle. So I would consider it a privilege to offer aid and, and, and guidance to any future commissioners. Commissioner Lee, it is always a pleasure. Thank you so much for hopping on the podcast and sharing with us your thoughts. This was a great conversation and you've given me a lot of food for thought. Thank you, my friend. It's great to be here. Public service at its best is service. And I can tell you from living in our nation's capital that that's not always easy. There are always different folks tugging and pulling from left, right, and center. And increasingly, service, no matter where it may be, involves a certain level of personal sacrifice that reflects as much polarized times as they do the difficulty of issues on the merits. For an agency like the SEC, this is particularly notable, especially as it faces challenges as diverse as ESG and when a private company should go public. Now, Allison's tenure has been notable in trying to steer a path that confronts these challenges head on. And it'll be interesting to see just where and how she directs her energy as she enters her final stretch and where her successor will lean in in the years ahead. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.